Amen. Well, good morning, church family. It's really good to see you, and I'm really glad that you're here, and I'm really glad to have the opportunity to preach this text. Um, I want to make this introduction to this text. Uh, y'all read the Bible. Y'all read the Bible. And uh, when you read the Bible, uh, sometimes you're going to come across some uh, tough stuff. Uh, you might call them hard sayings, things that are difficult to swallow, uh, difficult to digest. And uh, this is one of those. This is one of those. Just say that. This is one of those. Uh, John Mark had planned to preach this sermon and had a family situation come up, so he can't be here this morning. Um, and I was going to preach this in Spanish, so we're translating. Uh, but he, he shared uh, some of his comments on this text uh, with Ever and myself and some of the pastors. And one of the things that he shared in, that, uh, in his comments, I thought was a really helpful illustration to kind of help us jump off as we start exploring this text. And he made this comparison that I thought was really helpful. He said, uh, sometimes, you know, when you're a kid, uh, you got to take some medicine. And sometimes that medicine tastes really good and it's easy to swallow. But other times you take that medicine and it's hard to swallow, but it's still good for you. Uh, my son, Joshua, right now, uh, well, first of all, I'll say that all my kids love some of their medicine. Uh, particularly amoxicillin. Yeah, I know. Amoxicillin. Somehow, I guess it tastes like bubble gum, but it's, just, it's supposed. To, it's like it's just, they just love taking amoxicillin. Now, uh, I've never had the kind of uh, particular uh, indulgence that they have because of their particular. Uh, it's much more easy for them to get ear infections. They have a lot more opportunity to take this amoxicillin, uh, but but they love it. But right now, Joshua happens to be on a, a steroid, and some doctor in the room could, could verify it, but you can't ask him because of HIPAA belt violations. But I'll just tell you that he's taking a steroid, and every time he takes it, he says, this is some of the nastiest stuff I've ever tasted in my life. Now, I don't know much about it. I'm not going to taste it. I'm not going to try to, like, verify what he's saying. But he's saying it's very nasty, and Mary Poppins helps us to understand that if you just take a little bit of sugar with that medicine, it'll help it go down. But the reality is, like, it's really important that that medicine goes down because it will help you live a flourishing life, and if you don't take it, it could have really harmful effects. And the hard sayings of Jesus are like that. Sometimes they're hard to swallow. They're hard to digest. But they're really good for you. They're really good for you. And in today's text, uh, so thank you, John Mark, for that, that illustration. Uh, in today's text, we have a really hard saying of Jesus. Uh, but what he's going to do is he's going to call out self-righteousness and self-promotion. He's going to say, you should repent of that. You should repent of that. Now, on the, on the surface, it feels like a hard saying because it, it sounds like people come to Jesus and say, hey, this tragic thing happens. And it sounds like, like every time I've read this text growing up, it just felt like Jesus is like being really insensitive and somewhat apathetic to the, the plight of these people. I'll just say right now, like, that's not what he's doing. 
Uh, Jesus is the most sensitive uh, being in the universe, and he really cares about every single thing that you're going through. And, and the fact that he can know there are 18 people that died under this tower, like he knows every single one of them by name. He knows how many hairs are on their head. Nothing in their life is hidden from him, and he deeply cares. And this is the most sincere thing he can say in response to news to these tragedies. So I want us to hear that, but to hear that, I really think we need the help of the Holy Spirit. So before we jump in, I just want to give us a moment to pray. And I'm going to pause and just give you a moment before God to say, God, I really need your help to hear what you want to say to me in this text. And then I want to voice a prayer for you and for me that we both hear Jesus this morning. Does that sound good? All right, so I'll give you a moment to pray, and then I'll, I'll, I'll say a word of prayer for us. God, we confess together as a community that you are the Holy One. And part of what that means is that you are the benevolent one. You're the one whose grace uh, abounds. You give more and better than we could ever deserve. And so we ask this morning that you would give us uh, your grace to hear and understand these words from Jesus. You would illuminate our minds. You'd help us to understand what you want to say. You give us hearts that not only like uh, believe that what you're saying is true, but that we really see the beauty in what you're saying so that we can not only hear it and believe it, but we can teach it to uh, the next generation and we can um, act on it in a way that reflects the beauty of your kingdom. So, would you do the work you want to do inside of us and inside of our, our church this morning, both here and in the uh, gathering of the Spanish speakers? So would you be glorified, God, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. The words here in Luke chapter 13 are not isolated from the rest of Scripture or from the rest of Luke. And so uh, the context of the passage that we're in is that in chapter 9, verse 51 of, of Luke, Uh, Luke writes these words. He says, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, uh, for him, Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. And for the last few chapters, he has been uh, marching somewhat like a military leader uh, toward Jerusalem. And people have been coming to him and they've been recognizing this is possibly the Messiah the promised king who's supposed to liberate God's people from their enemies, from their oppression. He's going to liberate them. They, they hope, namely, he's going to liberate them from the Romans. Uh, and so they've been coming to him, and he's been teaching them. And I want you to listen to what he's been saying, and I want you to, to think about what he's been saying. He's been saying things like, hey, uh, don't fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. He's been saying, uh, make sure you give yourself fully to the Son of Man. The Son of Man was a figure, an ancient persona, this ancient 
uh, persona of a king who was going to be given a kingdom, is going to reign over this kingdom with peace. This is like a, a, a militaristic title, son of man. He's been saying, don't be anxious about your life. He's been saying, fear not, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's been saying, hey, stay dressed and ready for action. He's been saying, keep your lamps burning. He's been saying, stay awake. He's been saying, I came to throw fire on the earth. He's been saying, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to be division. He's been saying, look what time it is. Get ready. The kingdom is here. Make your peace with God. Now, what does that sound like to you? To me, that sounds like we're about to make a siege on Jerusalem. We're about to take over the kingdom. We're about to bring the kingdom to the capital. But it's interesting because he's also been saying stuff like, don't take any money bags. Don't even just take one staff. He didn't say, like, arm yourself. He didn't say, uh, where's your whip? He didn't say, make sure you're strapped and ready. He's been... He's been saying stuff that's just a little bit different from that. He doesn't sound like a military king, but he kind of looks like one. And that's the context for verse 1. So that when we get to verse 1 and some dudes come and say, uh, Pilate just slaughtered some people from Galilee who showed up in Jerusalem and he mixed their blood with the sacrifice, the blood of the animal sacrifices that they came and brought to the temple. And we don't know exactly what happened in this. We know from uh, like the Jewish writer uh, Josephus that that Pilate was a really like horrific like uh, ruler who didn't bother him to slaughter people. Like that was not a big deal to him. Like Rome is going to be on top, and that's that's just kind of how we're going to roll. And so it didn't it doesn't this 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 particular event doesn't really show up in history, but it totally makes sense that Pilate would do something like this. And we don't know the exact motivation for the people who are coming to him, but if you can imagine, Jesus is coming from Galilee through Samaria. He's in Judea now, and people come and say, hey, the last Galileans that showed up, look what Pilate did to them. We don't know why they're saying this. Are they scared for Jesus? Are they saying, you better get strapped? Like, what's their motivation? It's not really clear. Are they trying to rile Jesus up? It's not really clear, but what is clear is that whatever they came with, whether it's like, uh, Jesus watch out, or Jesus gets strapped, it's very clear that Jesus doesn't take their bait. Instead, he responds in a way that we don't expect, and I believe Jesus' response gives us a clue to what he believes is really at stake. See, one of the things that the bearers of this news probably are thinking is this. Those Galileans in Jerusalem had it coming. They had it coming. Now, why do I say that? Because in ancient Greek culture, fate and guilt went together. In the words of one New Testament scholar, guilt inextricably woven with fate is the cause of suffering. So if you're suffering, you must be guilty. If you're suffering, you must have had it coming to you. Why do I say that? Well, one, 
The New Testament scholar alerted me to that fact. But the other thing, we can just read the Bible and see that was a common thought. You read the whole book of Job, right? And Job's friends say, hey, dude, yeah, you lost your kids. Yeah, you lost your house. But clearly it must have been your fault. It must have been your fault. You just repent and get set, yo, because it must have been you. And Job is like, no, that's not quite the way it works. That wasn't just Old Testament thought. Even even to the disciples said this in John chapter 9. Jesus flees the temple at the end of chapter 8. And in chapter 9, they come across a man who was born blind right next to the temple. He's begging. Remember this story? Some of you guys remember remember this. If not, you can go read John chapter 9 to figure it out. But but they pass this man who's born blind. And his disciples say to him, hey, uh, master, who, who sinned? This dude or his parents, he would have to suffer like this. It was just evident. Like, like the assumption is somebody had to have sinned, otherwise this dude wouldn't have been born blind. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way this works. Not the way this works. He said, this guy is like this because they want you to see the glory of God. There's no sin involved, just the glory of God. See, here's the reality, family. I want you to hear this because some of us I know are suffering. And it can be really easy if you're suffering to think, what did I do wrong? And I want you to know that it's not always the case. Suffering is a result of sin, but it may not be your sin. Suffering is in the world because sin is in the world. And the result of Genesis chapter 3 is that the world is broken. Read the whole book of Ecclesiastes and you'll see sometimes just bad stuff happens to good people. It doesn't mean that you sinned. It doesn't mean that you sinned. If you're suffering today, if you come with some real deep pain, I just say keep looking to the cross. Keep looking to the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus showed us that some suffering can be really redemptive. And he came to suffer for your suffering. So you can come to the God who embraces you and who cares for you who wants to redeem every act of suffering because he really does love you. He really, really does. So Jesus, in fact, in the words of of another New Testament scholar who is commenting on on these verses, he says this. This is David Lyle Jeffries, and he says, The idea of a necessary causal connection between personal sin and the experience of suffering here is uh, 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 disregarded with one word. Or discarded with one word. So Jesus is saying here that no, it's not the case that necessarily you sinned if, if you're facing suffering. So I want you to hear that word today. So what is at stake here? Jesus is saying, by his response, he gives us a clue of what he believes is really at stake. He says, do you think that these Galileans were shown to be sinners from all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? And what Jesus is doing is he's responding to their question and he's saying, regardless of what they're coming with, what they believe their question is about, and what their statement of this news is about, he says, more important than what Pilate is doing, more important than what the political rulers are doing, more important than what our our senators are doing in Washington, D.C., more important than what's going on in the Oklahoma State Capitol and the State Department of Education, More important than what's going on in Mayor Holt's office is what's going on in your heart. What's going on in your heart. Because the line between good and evil isn't like out there and in here. It's like right here. It's like right here. 
And he says, do you think that they're like greater sinners because they're suffering these things? And he says, no. He says, nah, no, I tell you, like, not at all. But unless you repent, something even more serious is going to happen to you. You're going to likewise perish in the same way. And I can't help but like exploring what is that, what does he mean by that? Like likewise perish. Perish is a big, deep word. Like he's not just saying you're going to die. He's not saying if you don't turn around, Pilate's going to kill you too. Because we know that like what's going to happen to some of the people who he's writing, some of the people Jesus is talking to, uh, uh, some of the followers who have decided come from Galilee with him to walk with him along this road are going to die at the hands of Rome. Their blood will be mingled too. So he's not saying you're not going to die if you repent. He's not making this like literalistic. He's he's saying that God is a God of justice. And his judgment is sure. And if you think I'm coming to bring some kind of an overthrow to Pilate, that's that's, that's too small of of a kingdom overthrow. It's too small. I want to uproot the nature of evil in your heart. And I want to dethrone every idol. And we're going to see later. Because I really want you to bear fruit. I want love and justice to come out of your heart. And that's not going to happen by overthrowing Pilate. That's going to come by overthrowing the idols in your heart. Jesus moves from just talking about this news about a, a, a political tragedy to like a, just a disaster. Jesus brings this up. He says in the next verse, he says in verse 4, those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders? The words here are really like debtors. And all the others lived in Jerusalem. He says the exact same thing. Just about the exact same thing. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He says, let that tragedy alert you to the fact that you're not going to live forever. And peace with God is the most important decision you can make in your life. Because God has really good plans for you. Has really good plans for you. And he really wants you to be alert to the fact that that. He's a God of judgment. He's a God of justice. He's going to bring his judgment. But, something, but then he says something else. He gives this parable. And this parable is, there's so much in here that's just so beautiful. Jesus is like the master illustrator. So if you don't know exactly what I mean, check this out. And he gives him this parable. He says, hey, there's a man who got a, a vineyard planted. He, he actually had a, a fig tree planted inside the vineyard. And that wasn't very, uh, that, that wasn't like an uncommon thing. He would often plant fruit trees in vineyards because it somehow I don't understand all the horticulture, but it would make the vines grow better and make better fruit if you have better wine. He had a, had a fig tree planted in this vineyard. And, uh, and uh, the uh, gardener, or the man came back. He said, uh, I came to the vineyard after three years. Uh, it was probably, probably around year six, cause, uh, because often you had to give 
tree a little bit of time to bear fruit. But he came back looking for fruit in the time when it was supposed to be bearing fruit. And he said, in, after the three years, I came and there was no fruit on this tree. So he says, yo, just, 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 just cut it down. Just cut it down because it's taking up some of the nutrients in the earth. We need to plant something else there. And the gardener has this word and he says, look, look, hold up, check this, wait, hold up. I'm going to dig around it, I'll loosen up the soil, I'll put some good fertilizer down, come back in a year, we'll check it. And then if it's, if it's not bearing fruit, then if it's bearing fruit, but if it's not bearing fruit, you can cut it down. And Jesus stops the parable right there. And we're like, what? But this is beautiful. So first thing to say is vines and fig trees go together. All throughout the Old Testament, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll find vines and fig trees. First time, the first time you find a fig tree is in the garden. Remember this, in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, because after people sinned, God had mercy on them. He gave them his word, his word of judgment and his word of grace. And what he did was he took a fig leaf and he covered them. He covered their shame, the fig tree. And all throughout the Old Testament, starting like in Leviticus, but going all the way through the prophets, whenever you see this idea of fig tree, it's often, it's often an image of, of the abundance of the kingdom. It's the goodness of the kingdom. Some of you guys who have seen Hamilton, you might know this, like that, that George Washington sings this song, and he's quoting from Micah chapter 4, and he says, he says, everyone will sit under their own vine and fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. And sitting under your own vine and fig tree is a symbol of, of God's perfect protection and abundance and provision for his people. And God, and God even says, like, my people are like a vine that I planted. And they're gonna, and they're gonna grow and they're gonna bear fruit and they're gonna sprout and they're gonna fill the whole world with my fruit, the whole world with my abundance, the whole world with my peace. I'm gonna plant you and you're gonna, I'm gonna actually, I'm gonna plant you in a desert place. I'm gonna show the whole world I can do the impossible. I'm gonna make you bloom even when there's no other water but mine. That's what I'm gonna do with you. So when Jesus comes in John chapter 15, he says, I am the vine, my father is the vine dresser. Abide in me, and you'll bear much fruit. He's saying, if you want to know where true Israel is found, you want to know where God's people are really found, they're found in me. Just trust me. It's not done through keeping a bunch of regulations and a bunch of rules. It's not found by having a genealogy that goes all the way back down to Abraham. What's found is if you just trust me, you're grafted in. You're part of my family. I'm going to bear fruit in your life, and you are going to touch the nations with your fruit. And here he says, so we hear this vine and fig tree language, you want to think about the people of Israel, but this is like true Israel. And here's what he's saying is, he says, there was a man who had a vine, had a fig tree in a vineyard. Listeners are already thinking, he's talking about us. He says he came back after three years and he, he couldn't find any fruit. Imagine being a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a zealot. Or trying to be just a good Jew. What do you mean you didn't find the fruit? What do you mean? I've been keeping all the law. I've been doing everything Moses said. What are you talking about? So I came looking for fruit. I didn't find any. We can read the other parts of Jesus' Jesus's saying, like Matthew 23. And what he's going to say is, actually, in place of justice, what I found is injustice. I found you teaching things that you're not even practicing. 
I find you're not really keeping the law. You're keeping some like semblance of law, but you're not really living out the greater matters of the law, which is like justice and faithfulness and mercy. I didn't find any fruit. And I think what's beautiful in this is this, uh, this vine dresser. Now, some people will say, as they read this text, like, uh, the man who has the, the fig tree is the father and the vine dresser is Jesus. I just don't think that's true because I don't think there's any, like, competition in the Godhead. I think the point of this is that, is that this whole thing is talking about the nature of the kingdom and about God's role with his people. And what he's saying is, I am really, really patient because I really, really love you. And I really, I want to bring justice, but I want to, I really want to redeem you. So what he says is, the vine dresser says is, just give it a year. I know you should have seen fruit. I know you should have seen fruit. I know you should be making wine by now. You should be at least, well, maybe not wine. We don't want a fig tree. Maybe you should be making some good preserves by now. We should have some pies. But we don't. So check this. This is what the gardener says. He says, so let me do the work. Let me do the work. Do you hear that, saints? Let me do the work. Here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll loosen the soil. I'll dig a little trench. I'll, I'll loosen the soil. I'll make it so that water can get down to the roots. I'm going to give it all the nutrients it could possibly have. And then, got some cows out back. I'm going to get the good, the good fertilizer. This ain't just like your Home Depot. Like this ain't just like the normal stuff. I'm gonna get the stuff that like will make this. It'll make this this fig tree surge with energy. I'm gonna put it down. I'm gonna be tender with it. I'm gonna care for it. I'm gonna spend my life making sure it has everything it needs to bear rich fruit. And then, come back, there's fruit. It's interesting because in your text, when he gets to this part of the, of, of the uh, story, he says, verse 8, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put out, I'll put out manure in verse 9. If it should bear fruit next year, well and good. You see those words, well and good? In, in, in the Greek text, it that, that's what he means. That's what he means. That's the, that's the sense of the text. But actually, it doesn't even say that. It just says, uh, uh, if it's bearing fruit, if it's not, you can cut it down. I think what's really interesting about that is that Jesus is the kind of guy, he doesn't like take credit. Like if, if it's bearing fruit, But if it's not, you can cut it down. Here's the thing I want you to take from this text, from this, this parable. One, God's justice is sure, which is both bad news and good news. It's bad, no, bad news if we walk in sin, because God is a guy who's not going to make peace with evil. He does not make peace with evil forever. He's not slow in keeping his promises. He is faithful in keeping his promises. But what Second Peter alerts us to, in chapter 3, 
If you want to turn with me, you're welcome to. You can just write it down. But Second Peter chapter 3, starting in uh, verse 9, we see this. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. As some of you count slowness. But is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and in the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Skipping down to verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Verse 15, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our brother, beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. What God is saying is, I'm not slow in keeping my promises. I just really want you to be saved. I really do. He's a God of justice. He's, he's going to come and judge the world. He's going to do that. But he is a God who is as we've been exploring, he is filled with steadfast love. Like his nature is love. Like he is a God of steadfast love, patience with us. Why? So that we'll repent. He wants us to turn from that self-righteousness that says they got that what was coming to them. He says, turn from that self-righteousness. Turn from that uh, self uh self-indulgence, turn from that idea of thinking that you're better than everybody else. Turn from that and come to me for your salvation. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to make you someone who, as John the Baptist said, bears fruit in keeping with repentance. I'm going to make you an, I'm going to make you an object of my goodness. You can, you can be good to the world. I'm going to fill you with my love and my fruit so you can go out and love the world. You can invite others to partake in that same fruit. See, something, something about the nature of God. God is not a God who is bent on uh, destruction. In fact, God is a God who is bent on recreation. And like we saw last week, God, God's fire is a fire that, that purifies that which is good and makes it even better, it makes it glorious. And that's what he wants to do with you. How do we know? Because when Jesus set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem, he wasn't setting his, his face to, to, to go overthrow the capital. He was setting his face to go be overthrown. So he could go overthrow evil with good. What he is determined to do, what he is marching toward, is toward the Via Dolorosa, the, the, the way of the passion. He's, he's marching toward his own suffering. Why? So he can take it from us. That's what this is about. This is the God who can turn, who can turn an instrument of destruction into some of the most beautiful jewelry you've ever seen. Why? Because in his suffering is his redemption. In his suffering is our salvation. And when we turn to Jesus, we're turning to a God who is filled with steadfast love and justice, who says, I see you, and I see your pain, and I see your, your suffering, and I came to bear it. So just turn to me. 
Walk with me. Yeah, I'm going to dethrone your idols. Yeah, I'm going to reverse what you think the kingdom is about. Why? Because I want you to be an instrument of love and justice in your family, in your community, and in your workplace. I want to change the trajectory of your life. So what are we going to do with this? I think one thing is, let's keep reading the Bible. Because what I'm I'm finding in this text is that God's word really is good. And if you come to, and all the time, God is good. And and if you come to a text that you think, I'm not sure where the grace is, keep studying. And talk to people. Because this is a text that is filled with God's grace. It's filled with God's grace. This medicine is really good for us. Second thing I would say is examine yourself. And ask the Holy Spirit to examine your heart. God, examine me. Where am I self-righteous? Where am I saying, y'all the evil people, I'm the good people, my tribe is the good people? And, and repent of that stuff, man. That's not the kingdom. It's not the kingdom. Especially this year, friends. Especially this year. It is 2024. And the news is filled with propaganda and elections. Let's be the kingdom people. Say it's not about my tribe and your tribe. It's about the kingdom of the Lamb who came to suffer on behalf of the other people. Let's bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But third, let's, let's digest. Let that medicine have its good work. And wherever Jesus says, eh, this isn't what my kingdom's about, turn from it. Turn from it. Turn from it now. Turn from it now. Listen to his whisper. Listen to his whisper. He disciplines those he loves. That is sure. He's a really good father. If he wasn't a good father, he wouldn't discipline you. If he didn't discipline you, he wouldn't be a good father. He's a good father. He will discipline you for sin. So listen to him. Do what he says. And what you'll find is that increasingly, increasingly you'll find more figs than briars. You'll find more grapes than thorns. You'll find that your life becomes filled with dirty water that's been made into wine. That brings healing to the nations and healing to your family and healing to your relationships. So let's take seriously this word this morning and let's... By the power of the Holy Spirit, let's bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, I thank you so much for your good word. I thank you, Lord, for your gentleness and your grace and your justice. Thank you for a God that does not, he, he does not stop at anything to make peace with us. I pray you'd help us to be a people of peace who go into the world fighting different battles than what the world is. So we can be seen to be your children. So Lord, help us to digest this. Help it to go down deep into our souls, we pray in Jesus' name.